podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Red Inca, we talk about cricket and baseball so we can discuss pitchers who can't hit, number 11s who can't bat, and how baseball has produced their first great all-rounder in 100 years. So I brought on one of baseball's greatest writers to chat about it. I'm Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for The Ringer, an American sports and pop culture website. We discuss soft tosses, Babe Ruth, number 11s, Imran Khan, designated hitters, and the two-way all-round unicorn that is Shohei Otani. I've got you on because you asked me for some for a piece you did on the ringer about baseball pitchers not being able to bat and position players in baseball not being able to pitch. And we ended up getting in a direct message conversation about kind of all-rounders in cricket and non-all-rounders in baseball and how these things work. So yes. to start with, if you could explain, you talked about this in your ringer piece, Freeman versus Bradley, which in my notes <laughs> I have subheaded shit versus shit. <laughs> That's uh, pretty accurate, I would say. That's appropriate. Yes, yeah, so that was kind of my lead example because there was a plate appearance earlier in this MLB season where a position player was pitching and a pitcher was hitting and they were facing each other. And it was just kind of uh, incompetence against incompetence, really. It was the, the worst thing you could imagine. I called it in my piece a, a battle between an easily stoppable force and an eminently movable object. So you had the the pitcher who was batting in this case, and he was actually uh, slightly injured. He had a, a little bit of an oblique muscle pull. And so he was not swinging in this plate appearance. They just sent him up there because in baseball, you have to bat and he was not going to swing. So he just stood there and took the pitches and the pitcher who was normally a position player, he just moved over from another position in the infield. He was throwing, oh, I don't know how hard he was throwing, 50 or 60 miles per hour, just kind of lobbing it in there. It was like you were, or I could have done this probably, which is not something that you would normally say about high-level athletes in a major professional sport, but this is something of a routine occurrence in baseball, not necessarily a position player pitching to a pitcher hitting, but at least one of those things happening at any given time. Yeah. Our whole conversation started with whether number 11s are worse at batting than pitchers are at hitting. And mm -hmm. I've always thought that those two were probably the most obvious places of where you are legitimately asking a human being to do something that his or her body is in no way designed to do. They don't have yes. the talent or the ability to be able to do that. In baseball, though, I find this really interesting. Baseball, you're moving away from pitchers hitting. You have mm -hmm. the designated hitter rule. And from your article, it looks like that's going to take over all of Major League Baseball. Is that the idea? Most likely. It is not official, but... It has been in place in one league since the early 1970s, and there's just been this perennial debate raging about whether pitchers should hit or not. So they have been hitting in one league and not the other, with the exception of 2020, the pandemic-shortened season where there was a universal designated hitter in both leagues. And somewhat surprisingly, pitchers have hit again this season. A lot of people assumed that 2019 would have been the end. But it came back for this year. Now everyone is sort of assuming that it will likely go away again next year. But that has not officially been determined yet. That is one reason why I wanted to write about this, because I felt like this might be the last time that we actually get a look at pitchers hitting in Major League Baseball. And there has been some movement toward perhaps curtailing position players pitching, too, which has really ramped up in recent seasons. You know, it didn't used to be that prevalent, but now it is, I think, because teams have gotten more tolerant of essentially throwing in the towel. You know, there's no forfeit in Major League Baseball. There is no mercy rule. I mean, technically you can forfeit if you want to walk off the field, but nobody ever does that and there's no automated forfeit. So now what happens is when a team gets out of hand and it's a blowout and there's no way you're going to come back, and teams are getting more and more careful with their pitchers and not wanting to work them too hard and, and not wanting them to get fatigued. So when you're losing by a lot or in rare cases, even winning by a lot, you put in a position player. You put in your catcher or your shortstop or your left fielder, you know, whoever is available on your bench. And they just go up there and they toss balls in until it's over. And they are terrible at that, too. 
That makes more sense, I suppose, in that you are trying to protect the body, you've already lost the game, and you're making that decision. The pitches the bat, being that the designated hitter rule has been around, at least in one league, for longer than you and I have been alive. I don't want to age you, Ben, mm -hmm. but certainly even older than I am. Longer than anyone has been alive, yes. <laughs> uh, anyone who listens to podcasts, anyway. <laughs> so I find it incredible that they haven't moved completely to it. And I just want to read you something that you wrote. You said, for now, though, pitchers sometimes still hit and hitters sometimes still pitch, which for better or worse seems somewhat antithetical to the purposes of professional sports. Now, this I find really interesting because I think you know my random theory here, which is that Americans believe that professional sport should be the absolute best person going <laughs> up against the absolute best person. So the quarterback should be going up against someone whose only job is to sack the quarterback and right. the quarterback doesn't defend or anything. That's not really how the rest of international sport looks at sport. You want your striker to go back and defend and you might even want your goalkeeper to try and get a header late in the game in football. Mm -hmm. And in, if a quarterback was a rugby position, the quarterback would play defense as well. But in America, mm -hmm. you guys have been sort of motoring towards this extremes of essentially the best versus the best. Yeah. So that's why I find it weird that designated hitter just hasn't swept the whole game. <laughs> yes, it is somewhat surprising. Yes. Earlier when I said no one has been alive before the, the designated hitter, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to suggest no one was born before 1973. What I was getting at was the fact that going back to the beginning of baseball, there has been an expectation that everyone would both play their position in the field and also bat. And that is why what is happening now wasn't really in the original plan for the sport. And that's why it's sort of this anachronistic kind of archaic or, or vestigial sort of system where there has been this increasing specialization in the sport where you just have the best people at all times doing the best things. And there is this exception because I think people still feel very strongly that it's somehow uh, cheap. You're, you're getting away with something. You're not doing your full job if you are not playing your position and also batting, you should be able to do both of those things. You know, there are nine positions, there are nine spots in the batting order. There's a symmetry to that. And I think people feel like you're letting people off easy if you just say that they can specialize, they only have to do one thing. Now, early in baseball history, I mean, going back to the 19th century here, this was not a problem because things were not so specialized and primary pitchers were not so bad at hitting. You know, at the beginning of baseball or Major League Baseball even, they were about 80% as good as the average batter. It, it just, you know, there wasn't such talent and specialization in the league. So it wasn't such a glaring thing. And then when it comes to position player pitchers, that never really happened at that point either because in those days, pitchers would pitch complete games. You know, the expectation was that one pitcher would throw the entire game. So this is really a kind of a more modern problem in that you have have position player pitchers who have appeared all of a sudden, and then you also have pitchers just getting worse and worse and worse at hitting over time. And it's like a gradual kind of straight line decline almost if you look at pitchers' productivity on offense. So there is still a debate that rages that says, no, I grew up and pitchers had to hit and you got to do the whole job. And then there are people on the other side, and I tend to be on that other side, who say, this has just gotten out of hand. You know, why are we asking them to do these things? They're not trained to do these things. In many cases now, pitchers will go from little league or high school or grammar school and they won't hit all the way up. You know, sometimes even in college, they don't hit in the minor leagues. They don't hit. And then all of a sudden, if they're a National League pitcher, they're expected to face off against the best pitchers in the world. And they're completely overmatched and underqualified. And it's just a, a strange thing to continue to insist that they do because there's almost no overlap between these skills. You know, there's really nothing about pitching that prepares you to hit. It's just two different jobs. You're not selected as a pitcher based on your batting ability and it shows. One of the other things you talked about was that there's a clear delineation when pitches went from sort of, well, softball pitching, I suppose, to overarm baseball style yeah. of pitching. Is, that's the best way of putting it, I suppose, isn't it? From underarm to overarm, we would call it in cricket, but it's obviously yes. slightly different. And that's a long, long time ago. That's 1884. Yeah. That's why I want to bring this up because it actually happened in cricket before then. So it happens mm -hmm. in cricket in about 1864. I mean, uh -huh. ridiculous that our sports are this old that we can have this conversation. <laughs> but yes. So overarm bowling basically takes over in the 1860s, 1870s in cricket and a little bit later in baseball for whatever reason. 
In baseball, that's when the pitches start getting a lot worse as mm-hmm. far as batting goes. But we actually have in cricket for about the first 40 or so years, there's a lot of all-rounders, a lot of players mm-hmm. who do do both. And in fact, it's very rare to find old cricketers in that era who didn't perform very well with bat and ball. Like mm-hmm. almost everyone was an athlete of that style. That doesn't seem to have happened in baseball. So Obviously, the physicalities are a lot different. I know you've written in the MVP machine, you know, a lot about the physicalities of baseball hitters and baseball pitchers, but it seems to be that there was a separation very early on. And was there ever in that sort of overarm pitching era, was there any players other than Babe Ruth, who I suppose famously was a pitcher, who was Mm -hmm. good at pitching and good at hitting, or was there none around? There were some, yes. Uh, there weren't necessarily players who were the best at both, but there were players who would kind of casually do both, at least. You know, you would have pitchers who would appear in the outfield from time to time. You know, it wasn't a full time split necessarily 50-50, but definitely it was much more common in those early days in the late 19th century, even in the early 20th century. And Babe Ruth, as you note, is the player who often gets brought up as an example of a two-way success. And Really, he was a two-way player only early in his career, and there was only maybe two seasons, really, where he was regularly doing those things. You know, he started out as a full-time pitcher, and then gradually he became a full-time hitter, and there was an overlap of a year or two there where he was doing both pretty commonly. That was like 1918, 1919, you know, and really there aren't many more recent examples of star-level players who did it. There were some black baseball players in the Negro Leagues who did it a little later than that in the 20s and the 30s, but that's about it. And, you know, in the past century or so, there have been players who, you know, had some talent in both and they certainly specialized in one or the other, but they could throw a few innings for you here or there. And there are also guys who, you know, they washed out as whatever they came up as, you know, they started as a pitcher and then they converted to be an outfielder, let's say, or they started as a hitter and then that didn't work out and they went back and started again as a pitcher and had some success doing that. But to do both at the same time at the highest level regularly is vanishingly rare until Shohei Otani, who I imagine we will discuss at some point in this conversation, it was essentially unheard of and it also seemed just about impossible. So it's something that's always fascinated me that baseball still asks people to do this despite not paying them based on how they do this or preparing them to do this because it's rare, I think, to find a high-level endeavor like this where so much is on the line and there's so much attention and so much money at stake and yet you have complete incompetence on display (laughs) regularly, you know, not as an emergency situation, not the first five guys got hurt and we had to use the only Mm. person who was still standing, but it's the plan. It's part of the structure of the sport that the pitcher has to hit. And that is almost unique. I, you know, other than cricket, I think it's almost unique for that to still be the case. And I should preface, you know, because I, I am talking about how bad these people are at their jobs or at this aspect of their jobs that really shouldn't be part of their jobs. But I acknowledge up front, like they are all incredibly proficient and athletic and skilled mm. and talented. And just to get to this point is awe-inspiring. And the worst pitcher hitter would be better at hitting than I am. And all of these people who are terrible at this at the major league level will probably the best hitter in their school or in their town when they were growing up. So they're all great, of course. It's just that we're comparing them to other major leaguers who are even more great at the thing that they are actually (laughs) hired to do. So it fascinates me because... They're all great until someone's bowling a breaker at 98 miles an hour. (laughs) Exactly, right. (laughs) And then it's a little bit different. Yes. I want to ask you about, basically cricket is a government-run sport. Uh, up until very recently. So money, it's very hard to tell like who gets paid what and and how that works. But in baseball, you guys have all the wages. Yeah, I'm going to say ERA, even though I know that you're into advanced metrics and you don't like it. But if you had two baseball pitchers with a similar ERA and one had a better batting average, would they generally get paid more? Is that how it would have worked? Or do you not, (sighs) does that not even factor in? It would be negligible, I think. It would be maybe a tiebreaker, but 
there are very, very few pitchers who have any measurable batting skill. <laughs> mm. There's still some who are good relative to others, but really, you know, it, they don't bat that much, right? Because uh, you put them in the last slot in the order as you do in cricket and you try to minimize how often they will come to the plate. And generally pitchers these days are not pitching complete games. And so you're taking them out midway through the game. And even if you're in the National League, sometimes you're playing in American League parks and there's a DH. So really, pitchers don't get that many plate appearances. And it actually takes some time to see, are they actually good at this or did mm. they just happen to have a random 50 plate appearances or so? But really, there are a handful of guys, if that many, who you would say, oh, yeah, he's a good hitter for a pitcher, you know, still worse by far than the worst actual hitter. And really, like if you're a National League team, maybe. Maybe it's a consideration, but it's mm. an afterthought, really. And for instance, there's a pitcher named Max Scherzer, who is one of the best pitchers in baseball, a future Hall of Famer. And he was traded at the trade deadline in the middle of the season from the Washington Nationals to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it was the biggest deal at the deadline. And it was the huge headlines. And wow, the Dodgers got this ace. Max Scherzer is 0-4-41 as a hitter this season. He has come to the plate 44 times and he has yet to reach base. He has not walked. He has not had a hit. He has not gotten hit by a pitch. He has contributed exactly nothing. He has struck out in 17 of those 44 plate appearances and no one cares and no one knows. And it wasn't like, oh, should we go get this guy? He, he can't get on base. No, it was a complete afterthought because you want them for their pitching. And if they happen to get a hit now or then, it's nice. And Scherzer has not been the least competent pitcher hitter in the world. This is actually a bad season for him. But again, it, you don't even really bring it up when you're talking about how he's doing. With someone like him, would he be working on it? Or would literally the only time he picks up a bat is when he <laughs> suddenly realizes that it's the ninth man's going to walk out? Yeah, it varies by the team and by the player. You know, sometimes you do have guys who just came over from an American League team and they just have not held a bat in years or they just haven't hit since Little League, as I said. There is generally kind of a pro forma pitcher batting practice. You know, pitchers will go up there and they'll take a few swings or more often they'll just practice bunting because pitchers are so bad at hitting. Often they are just asked to bunt, to just, you know, try to stick their bat in front of the ball and have it dribble in front of home plate so that if someone is already on base, they could potentially advance. You know, they're so bad at the actual swinging part that either they're instructed not to swing so they don't hurt themselves or they're instructed to just try to push the ball with their bat if they can. So some of them take it seriously and actually enjoy it and are still bad at it, but, you know, at least make some sort of effort. Others, they go through the motions and, you know, there's really no effort, I think, largely because, as I said, you know, no one pitcher is getting all that many plate appearances and there's mm. a sense that this is probably coming to an end anyway. So almost all players and teams have just kind of conceded this is an automatic out. And if it happens not to be, then that's just a bonus. It's really interesting because as cricket got to the professional era, we kind of have done the opposite with number 11s in that we put more pressure on them to get better at batting. Huh. All bowlers, really. But as you know, the, the bowlers slightly up the order. They're always going to have slightly more impact anyway. But especially with number 11s, there was, you know, in the old days, you would stand back and swing because we didn't want you to get hurt because the ball can hurt you in cricket even more than it does in baseball. And mm -hmm. stand back, swing. And if you get a couple away, that's fine. And if you get bowled first ball, it doesn't matter. Now, number 11s are supposed to get behind the line and play correctly. And we had a situation the other day where one of the world's best bowlers, Jasper Brummer, was trying to injure James Anderson, the number 11, continually by hitting him with the ball, hoping that probably he would hit him in the hand or the arm. And another time that James Anderson, who cannot bat at all, realistically, he was told by the Australians to get ready for a broken fucking arm. <laughs> so it's a completely different mindset. As professionalism has come in, we expect more from our number 11s. Mm -hmm. And baseball's gone the complete other way. So you must look at cricket and just be like, why don't you have a designated hitter? <laughs> yes, I mean, I appreciate the effort, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> based on some of the stats you shared with me, it doesn't seem as if it's working all that well. And yeah, I think it's clear in baseball that it's just hopeless at this point. And mm. that is the thing that even as someone who favors the universal DH and, you know, people who are in favor of pitcher hitting, either it's kind of the old school tradition, hey, nine positions, nine batting spots, uh, they should have to do the whole job. 
Or they say, yes, they're completely terrible, but every now and then you get this memorable moment where a pitcher does hit a home run or something. And those unexpected surprises are worth it to some people, I think. So, you know, if you have 20 hopeless plate appearances and then you have one where something goes right, the pleasure that you get from that <laughs> makes up for all of the boring plate appearances to some people. Not to me. I, I think it's it's fun sometimes when a pitcher does that. But to me, it's outweighed by the many, many, many times when they just stand there and, and strike out or take some weak hack until they strike out. But the part of it that I do appreciate is that we have this kind of control group where it's this segment, this subset of players who are, I won't say not trying, but are just so hopelessly outclassed Mm. that it's not so different from if a a normal person off the street stepped into a a baseball game. Like, obviously, these people are bigger and stronger and more athletic than the average person, and, and they have at least some history of hitting. But really, you get a glimpse of how much better the actual players who are trying and are specializing and are being selected for their skills have gotten, you know, because it can be tough to measure exactly and quantify how much better are today's players than the players of decades ago or a century ago, because they're facing their contemporaries. So the stats look sort of similar. And of course, we don't have actual pitch tracking and movement tracking technology from long ago. So we can't say, oh, they're throwing Mm. this much harder exactly. So the fact that we have this control group of pitchers hitting is actually kind of useful, you know, because people like me who cover the sport, we spend a lot of time analyzing the very best in the game and figuring out how they're so good and why they're so good. And so it can be a nice little diversion to figure out how bad the very worst are. And by tracking how much worse they have gotten over time, we actually get a sense of how much better the average baseball player who is actually doing the part of the job that he is expected to do has gotten. So again, you know, you can produce a graph that says, here's how much worse pitcher hitting has gotten over time. And that's not a bad proxy for here's how much higher the talent level of the league has gotten over time. It's really interesting. The other thing is you talk about those rare moments. So I I think you talked about Daniel Camarena's Grand Slam. Off of Max Scherzer, the pitcher I mentioned earlier. Yeah. (laughs) When you have a moment like that in baseball, there's going to be a lot of moments where people are just whiffing or not even swinging, as you say. I think there is more drama in the number 11 batting. Just talking about James Anderson, he's going out there. He has to face someone bowling 85, 90 miles an hour trying to break his hand. There's a tension built into that that you don't get in baseball hitting as a general rule. And also the amount of time that they can bat. So Tino Best is a famous West Indian number 11. You know, he made a 90-odd. I saw Ashton Agar make 98, batting at number 11 for Australia. So really long innings where both of them must have batted for two or three hours. So again, Mm -hmm. when you get that enjoyment, it's not that one hit. It literally goes on for a long time. And the other Mm. thing that number 11s have allowed in the last couple of years is two of the greatest innings of all time have been played in the last three years by incredible players. But at the other end was a number 11 dragging themselves along. So you almost have what you're talking about there in real life. You almost have one of the greatest players playing their most brilliant innings where at the other end, they've basically got you or I (laughs) hanging on. So I think there is, in number 11s, you can almost see why cricket is holding on to it in a way that baseball doesn't need to, I don't think. I don't think the two are comparable, and I can understand. And we have had, we're in our second designated hitter phase, I would Uh say. We had one in the, around 2005, 2006, which didn't work for many different reasons. And now uh, the Big Bash League in Australia is trying another similar one. I do think eventually in T20 cricket, we'll probably move on from number 11s having to bat. I think it will Mm -hmm. follow more of a baseball style of things. But there is something inherent within cricket that we like the all-round nature of it. And it's always been something that we've pressed. So this is what I really want to get to you with the all-rounders in baseball or the two-way players, as you call them, in baseball. Mm -hmm. Is there not a tactical advantage to having an outfielder who can pitch in a completely different way without resting your main pitcher and taking him completely out of the rotation. So let's say you have three innings from your right-armed main pitcher. He mm-hmm. then gets a rest for two innings while your left-arm relief pitcher is there without you having to sub him out of the game and he can come back on. Is there not mm. tactical advantages from two-way <laughs> players that you could get that you're not using in baseball? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, in theory, if you had people who could actually do it, could yes, do it. Uh, I, <laughs> I think so. You know, it's it's so rare. I mean, there have been cases where, and this is much harder to do now because they changed the rules, but there was a, a tactic that used to be called the Waxahachie swap after the manager who uh, pioneered it, where you would use a pitcher and then you would move that pitcher to the outfield for a batter or two, and you would bring in someone else, you know, bring in another pitcher, say a, a left-hander versus as a right-hander if you want to get that platoon advantage, and then you could move that original pitcher back to the mound. And, you know, it helped if you had a, a pitcher who could play the field competently. And that is much harder to do now because they changed the rules just recently so that you have to face at least three batters if you're the pitcher. There's now a minimum and unless you're ending the inning. So you can't just move someone for, say, one hitter, for instance. It would have to be longer than that. And I think another problem would be that generally... I think teams are wary of sitting a pitcher for a while and then bringing him back after a long delay. You know, if there is a rain delay, let's say, and an hour or so goes by and the pitcher who was all warmed up, he's just sitting there for a while. Often they will worry about bringing him back into the game and think that there might be some injury risk there or, you know, some extra stress from having him warm up again. So I think that would make it less likely that you would make a change after multiple innings and bring someone back. But certainly if you had multiple players, one righty and one lefty, let's say, and they could play their positions in the field well and and you could just switch them back and forth. I mean, yeah, sure. There'd be a tactical advantage there or even just you know, consolidating two players essentially for the roster spot of one. And there are a few guys. I mean, there's a a player on the Cincinnati Reds named Michael Lorenzen, who is primarily a relief pitcher, but he's, you know, a pretty good hitter for a pitcher and he'll play outfield every now and then. And he'd sort of like to be a two-way player, but probably isn't quite good enough. And they haven't really let him do it regularly, but every now and then. So it's nice to have some extra value there. It's just that it is so, so rare for anyone to be able to do it at even the bare minimum of major league competence. And you just have Shohei Otani and that is essentially it. So there is no team that is juggling multiple guys who can do this or at least have prepared themselves to do this. I remember reading Moneyball for the first time and I've obviously, I've read uh, both of your books, which I'll put in the show notes because I'll get the names wrong, but, and a couple of other baseball books. And the two things that I never understood about baseball, the first one was why on earth you just didn't move the fielders to where the guy was obviously hitting the ball, right? which is basically was a Ted Williams thing and then disappeared and has now come back. Mm -hmm. As a cricketer, it's like, we know people hit in certain directions. Yes, it's a natural of course. thing. Yeah. Anyone who's ever played amateur golf will know that one guy <laughs> hits this way, one guy hits this way, and the woman hits straight down the middle, right? Mm-hmm. So that was the first one. The other one was that there is, a I would have thought, a huge tactical advantage in a team. It's probably too late now, I would have thought, in baseball. But in a team in probably the 60s, 70s, or 80s going, why can't we find three or four two-way players have them all available to us, have a pitcher who's an above average bat, and then have three position players who can all relieve for about two innings each. Mm -hmm. In a game, that just gives you incredible flexibility, deeper batting, which is what I would think any manager would want without having to sub people in and out. Has that ever happened at any level that you know of in the modern baseball era? No, (laughs) no, I don't think so. I don't know. It it seems to me just from working on the piece that got us in touch about this, that really the disparity is even more extreme in baseball than in cricket. And, you know, you sent me some numbers on how number 11s perform as batsmen and, you know, it's very bad, but I don't think it's as bad as pitcher hitters. And, you know, of course you do have batters who bowl and, you know, can perhaps do so semi-competently because there are multiple pitching styles or bowling styles, you know, where you can have more of a spin-based and less speed-based style. And in baseball, that doesn't really exist now. It's all velocity and speed. And so it's just such a bright line between these two things. And and it has been for a while, really. There hasn't been a good pitcher-hitter for Gosh, I mean, so long. It, it really is just about a century where anyone who's attempted it since has maybe been passable, but not good. And so to have not just one person who could do it, but multiple people multiple. who could do it on the same team, there's just no infrastructure really, you know, in the whole sport where 
from an early age, you're sort of pushed into specializing in one sport, perhaps in, in America, and then also specializing within that sport. So by the time you get to the majors, everyone or almost everyone has been doing just the one thing for years and years. And so it, it's almost too late by the time they get to that time. You know, you would you would have to have some sort of training facility set up when kids are still amateurs and groom them to do that from an early age. And that just isn't happening really. And so the level of futility really, I think is unmatched, even comparing to cricket and maybe the fact that there essentially is one all-rounder in baseball and that's it. Whereas that is still a, a fairly common thing in cricket that I think kind of speaks to just how much of a division between those duties there is and just how hard it would be. I mean, when you have pitchers who are throwing 100 plus miles per hour, there just aren't position players who can do that. And there aren't pitchers who are qualified to hit that. So it's almost impossible at this point. And for quite a while, really, it has been almost beyond the realm of imagination. Everything you said is fine, except that you're then talking about the fact that you now have the greatest two-way player in 100 years exactly. playing Major League Baseball <laughs> right now. Yep. So, I mean, I agree with you. I think actually the more, especially through the steroid era, when the pitchers and the hitters stopped looking like each other completely, didn't they? Like there was already a height differential and probably arm length differential and all those sorts of things and core muscle. And But through the steroid era, it certainly they looked completely like different species. So how on earth now, when baseball has never been more specialized, when we're literally at the point in baseball where we're about to actually make it as specialized as possible, has a random Japanese guy come through Shohei Otani and has the ability to be, what, in the best 10 pitches in baseball at the moment and in the best, what, two or three Mm hitters? And that's basically his ranking, isn't it? Yep, that is that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> it's uh We it's, haven't had anyone like him in cricket since Imran Khan, mm-hmm. the Pakistan Prime Minister. So, you know, good luck yep. to um to Otani in his future and Japanese politics. But that was in the nineteen eighties. Yeah. So Imran Khan retired in nineteen ninety two. Now Imran Khan did it for nine years, which is mm-hmm. remarkable. And he started as a very fast bowler and then became a very old canny bowler. And he started as a very bad batter and became a really a handy batter with a very high average, I think is the perfect way to put it. But we haven't had anyone who's been that good at those two things since then. Mm-hmm. We've had great all-rounders since then, Ben Stokes and Jacques Callis and Shaka Balhassan from Bangladesh. But we haven't had anyone who's been in the top 10 of both disciplines, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I think that's very safe. So how on earth has baseball managed to do that? <laughs> it is a sports miracle. It really is. <laughs> and we could do a whole podcast on this, and I have done whole podcasts on this. I never tire of talking about it, but it is unbelievable. It, it really is. I mean, if you had told me or asked me several years ago whether this was possible, I would have said absolutely not, no chance, and just about everyone else would have said so too. <laughs> it's just almost inconceivable that it's happening, and it makes me kind of giddy, as you can probably hear, to talk about it. Because, yeah, in baseball, the last people to do this at anything close to this level died long before Imran Khan started playing. So, I mean, you know, we're talking 1920s, 1930s here Mm. since anyone has seen anything like this. And it is just incredible. And Shohei Otani, he is a 27-year-old player for the Los Angeles Angels, and he is a great pitcher and he is a great hitter. He is uh, almost certainly going to be the most valuable player in the American League this year. He is lapping the field really at this point, and he is pitching now at a level where he could be a legitimate Cy Young contender too. The Cy Young Award is given to the best pitcher in the league. He's not going to get there this year because he started sort of slow. You know, he was injured for the past couple of years, and so he was a little rusty as a pitcher when the season started. But over the past few months, he has been about as good as any pitcher in baseball too. So he is doing these two things at the highest level, and he is doing them at the same time. And he's doing it at a time when the injury rates in Major League Baseball are higher than ever, you know, so a lot of the best players in baseball have missed 
all or part of the season. And he has just chugged along, just unstoppable seemingly, even though he is doing two jobs at the same time. And it's not just the incredible physical skills, the fact that he hits the ball harder than just about anyone and he throws the ball just about as hard as anyone too. So it's that and the fatigue that comes with taking batting practice and also throwing bullpen sessions and then the mental strain of, you know, having to study scouting reports for two different groups of players, right? He has to prepare, not just it's the physical skills that no one else can match, but it's also the preparation that you don't even see that takes a toll. Or there have been a couple times where he's been hit by a pitch as a batter this year and, and his next start as a pitcher has had to be pushed back. So there's a wear and tear on him that most pitchers don't suffer, don't incur because they're just pitching and that's it. So he is one of the strongest. He hits the ball incredibly hard. He throws the ball incredibly hard. He's also one of the fastest runners in the league. And so he steals bases too. There is essentially nothing that he can't do. And it's just kind of come out of nowhere. He did it in Japan, in Japan's major leagues, and he won the MVP there in 2016 as a two-way player. And a lot of people thought that either he wouldn't be able to sustain that when he came to the major leagues or he wouldn't be allowed to just because there's no recent history of that. And everyone thought, oh, he'll be forced to do one or the other. That is something people have been saying understandably about him since 2013 when he debuted in Nippon Professional Baseball, the highest level baseball league in Japan. And yet again, over and over, he has proved the doubters wrong and he just continues to get better and better. It is shocking and wonderful and joyous and is the biggest story in baseball this year and one of the biggest stories in sports. Is there a history of two-way players in Japan? No, it's really no less surprising that he did it there. You know, I recently wrote a piece about his origins in Japan, and even there he was breaking the mold and breaking boundaries, and everyone was saying there's no way this can happen. So even though the caliber of play in Japan is slightly lower than it is in the major leagues, though it's probably the highest level league other than MLB, even there, there is really no recent history of anyone doing this regularly or at a high level. So he had to completely go against tradition there as well. Just, you know, everywhere he has gone, there's no way that he could do this, that anyone can do this. And he does it and he proves everyone wrong over and over and over again. And he also, to the extent that we can tell, he also seems like a, a very endearing person and just a enjoyable guy. He's having fun. He's smiling. He's laughing. He's very courteous all the time. There just doesn't seem to be anything not to like about him. And as far as his actual performance on the field, there is <laughs> no hole in his game. There is no weakness. The only problem really has been his ability to stay healthy while doing both of those jobs, which was an issue for him in his first few years in the majors. And this year, he seems to have put that completely behind him as well. That's a problem in cricket. So two of the guys I mentioned before, Ben Stokes and Jacques Kellis, they bowl about close to about 50% of the amount of bowls that you would expect a professional bowler to bowl. And that's yeah. on purpose because we have had bowlers like Garfield Sobers, who's probably one of the greatest all-rounders of all time, who basically bowled like a professional bowler and then batted like a professional batter. And well, he spent a lot of his time out late at night as well with <laughs> nightclubs. But there was always a feeling that he actually could have been a better player had he been managed a little bit better. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that he's had so many problems with his injuries as well. What about the record? When he plays as a pitcher, he's also hitting. Does it mm -hmm. affect his hitting in those games? Yes, I believe so. I don't have the exact numbers right now, but he has hit a little worse in the games when he is pitching. He's still very good. In fact, in his most recent start just this week, he hit his 40th home run of the season, which is leading the major leagues by a fair amount. And he also pitched eight innings and gave up one run. So he he has had Big games game. where, yeah, <laughs> he's had multiple games. The somewhat surprising thing, I mean, he does hit in almost all of his starts as a pitcher now, basically all of them. Whereas, you know, early in his major league career, he was doing both, but generally not in the same game, you know, yeah. like he would pitch and then he would hit in different games and they would 
rest him. You know, he'd get a, a day off after he pitched and a day off, you know, before he pitched. Now they've just kind of taken the restrictions off and he has played in almost every single game this season and he hits in all of the games that he pitches. And yes, there is a, a slight drop off in his offensive performance on days that he has pitched, but he is still a good hitter. Even on those days, you know, he is uh, well worth having in the lineup and he's actually on this team, the Angels, that is not Good. Uh, basically, they have a 500 record. They've won as many games as they've lost. And that has been the case for them really going back several years now. They have Mike Trout on their team, who has been the best player in baseball. He is hurt for much of the season, but that's been the storyline surrounding this team. The Angels is that, hey, you have the best talent in the league and they still can't be a winning team. They can't make the playoffs. This year, it's Otani, not Trout, but it's the same story. And it just goes to show that in baseball, it's not enough to have one great player or even two great players. You have to have a good supporting cast surrounding those great players. And so the hope is that maybe next year, if Otani keeps doing this, if Trout is healthy, if the team surrounds them with some other good players, maybe they could actually be a good team. But for now, it's just the Otani show day after day. And it really has become a phenomenon where the other day I mentioned he had his 40th home run. He did that on the road. He did that in Detroit against the Tigers. And the Tigers fans were giving him a standing ovation. <laughs> They're getting beat up by this guy who is shutting them down as a pitcher and hitting a big home run. Run and they were cheering. Everyone is rooting for him, really. And part of that is that the Angels just aren't a very good team, so they're not really a threat to anyone, I guess. But also, it's just how can you not like the story of this person who is doing something that really just makes you question everything you knew? And that is the question, whether he is just a complete unicorn and he's one of a kind and we won't see anything like this for another century or ever again. Or is the fact that he is doing this kind of proof of concept and maybe it will demonstrate that it can be done and then you will get people who are more likely to try to do that or teams who are more likely to allow them to attempt to do that. So that's the question. Is he unique? Is he the only one we'll ever see? Or will this start something of a trend? Will there be a next Otani? But if you bring in the designated hitter rule right across, there's no real advantage to him playing both roles is there for a team? Yeah, I mean, you do still get basically a, a good hitter and a good pitcher in one roster yeah. spot, which helps you. There is a cost to it when he is the designated hitter on the days that he pitches, at least as the rules are currently written. The Angels then lose the designated hitter when he is removed from the game as a pitcher. And then from there on, either the pitcher has to hit or they have to use pinch hitters. So there is a, a cost to it. Now, it, it hasn't been a great cost because he's been pitching so well that he'll generally go six or seven or even eight innings. And so you won't actually have to play without him for that long. But there is some cost to it there. Now, if he were playing a position as well in the field as it is, he either pitches or he hits and he generally does not play the field. There have been some games where he'll go from pitcher to right fielder or left field for an inning or two just so that they can get him one more at bat before they pull him from the game. But he has not been regularly playing another position other than pitcher, even though he did that at the beginning of his career in Japan. And no one doubts that he could do that. Like he certainly has the physical skills to do that, but it would just be too much. It's such a marvel that he is doing this now that if he were also playing defense on the days that he's not pitching, in theory, he'd be even more valuable. But could he sustain that? You know, would he get hurt? Would he get tired? So if you could do that, then there would be some advantage to it. But that just seems like too much to ask. And you can see him pacing himself as a pitcher. He actually has one of the biggest differentials between the velocity of his pitches when the bases are empty and when men are on base or in scoring position. You will see that he will really ramp it up and he'll throw much harder when he gets into a jam or even as the game goes on. Whereas generally with a lot of pitchers, it's just all out max effort mm. at all times. So you can see that he is pacing himself. He's holding 
something in reserve. And he's still been as good as he's been. But I think he knows his body from having been doing this for years. He knows how to stay on the field and how to not exhaust himself. And so it's a constant process of, am I ready to play today? How long can I go? You know, am I overtaxing myself? And so he works with his trainers and with the angels to kind of come up with a plan to make this continue to work. But it is absolutely awe-inspiring. And and the best part of it is not someone like me marveling at it because every player in the majors is like inconceivably great compared to what I could do. But what is the most fun, I think, is to have the best players in baseball who are equally in awe of him and are just shocked that he could do this because they know better than anyone that this should be impossible. (laughs) And so when they see the same guy who is dominating them on the mound one day and then winning the game as a hitter the next day or sometimes even the same day, it's like they are reduced to little kids just watching and just giggling as they watch this thing that even they cannot imagine doing as good as they are. You said before he's the biggest story in baseball. He's almost the biggest story in American sports at the moment. Maybe, you know, Giannis winning Mm -hmm. uh, the NBA championship was up there as well. But essentially, he's the biggest story. And it's so big a story that, you know, people like me who don't follow baseball day to day are reading everything about him because it is so remarkable. Yeah. With that in mind, I think what we have learned in cricket, basically from Garfield Sobers all the way through to Ben Stokes, is that all-rounders are the most captivating cricketers. They do something that they're not really supposed to do. It shouldn't really work in cricket, let alone in baseball. Yeah. If he does this for like four or five years, right, Mm -hmm. and it's just absolutely incredible, would there be any blowback against the designated hitter rule at that point to be like, why would we not encourage more people like him to flourish? Whereas at the moment, as you said, the system's just not set up for unicorns. Yeah. I hear that every now and then that maybe you're taking away from the possibility that someone else could come along and do this in the future. But I think people just kind of look at him as like an alien or something. You know, he's just like someone from another species who has landed on our planet and decided to play baseball and entertain us all. It doesn't seem like a lot of people expect that anyone else is going to come along and be able to do this. I mean, could someone come along and be decent at both things? Maybe. Could someone come along and do this where they're the best or among the best at both things? It seems highly unlikely. You know, it's a once in a century event and it seems like it's gotten even harder to do over time. So I think people are looking at it as just an extreme outlier that will not be repeated. And so it doesn't make sense to really plan around another coming along or a generation of Otanis coming along. You know, even in Japan, like there has not been a successor, right? I mean, he He was Mm. the biggest star there, and it's not as if there has been a wave of Otani imitators who have come along. Essentially, no one has done it since he started doing it in Japan. So it really seems like he is one of a kind. And I'm trying to savor every day. And and really, I've seen probably 95% of his plate appearances this year, his innings, you know, (laughs) unless I'm doing something where I absolutely cannot rearrange what I'm doing, I'm watching just him every day. And again, it's not a good team. (laughs) You know, there are not playoff implications there, but he is just riveting. Like I can't take my eyes off the guy and I'm trying to savor every day and every hit and every pitch because you don't know whether you will ever see this again. And obviously he will attempt to keep doing this, but can he? He has the the physical talent clearly, but can he stay healthy? Will he break down again? He's kind of in his physical prime right now. And one imagines it will only get harder for him to sustain this sort of workload. So I would love for this to continue for years, but I can't count on that because as recently as this spring, it seemed like he might never put things together in the way that he has here. So you never know. This could be like the one season when it all works out and everything clicks and he's healthy and he's at the peak of his powers and we may never see this sort of thing again. And it's very likely, if anything, that we may never see this again post-Otani. I think the most you can hope for is that Teams will not be quite as quick to close the door on the possibility Mm. of it happening because you still do have two-way players in college, for instance, and occasionally a player will get drafted as a two-way player, but more often than not, they'll get drafted as a hitter or as a pitcher, even if they have done pretty well as both in college. And 
There have been some recent examples, even in the years since Otani really became a a figure, that you have seen teams maybe be a little bit more willing to entertain the possibility and just say, hey, we'll let them keep doing this until they fail, you know, until they prove that they can't, because you never know. Maybe he's not the next Otani, but maybe he could help us in this role, even if it's part time. So I think that's the most you can hope for, that anyone who looks like they have the potential to do something like this at least that avenue will be open a little longer. And, you know, if they fail, it'll be because they just weren't good enough, not because someone couldn't open their minds enough to imagine that it could be done and just said, no, we're not going to even let you try to do this. But Otani is such a huge star and such a huge story, despite the fact that he's not on a good team He's playing on the West Coast, which means that a lot of Americans who live on the East Coast are generally not seeing his games or at least not seeing them live. And he still doesn't speak English publicly, which is uh, completely understandable as a native Japanese speaker. And he does speak English privately and, frankly, whatever language he's speaking, I couldn't care less. (laughs) The language he's speaking is being the best baseball player in the world. But I think there is some element of that where, you know, just because you can't necessarily hear him in his own words. Maybe uh, people connect with him a little less, but even so, he is so magnetic and charismatic, you know, just seeing his expressions. I mean, he's a good looking guy, (laughs) to be honest. And I think there is a a contingent that just kind of has a crush on him. But also you can just have a crush on his baseball abilities because it's like nothing we've ever seen. Yeah, I think that one of one of the great all rounders from Australia was Keith Miller. And he was also a very attractive man. And Mm -hmm. he became such a bigger figure than his overall cricket was. There's something about someone who can do two completely divergent jobs in cricket and baseball. And it's remarkable. And the other thing is, you you were talking about him inspiring future Japanese players and then eventually future American and Cuban and everywhere else baseballers. As English fans will tell you after Ian Botham, they spent 30 years trying to find another Ian Botham. And oh my God, did they find a lot of poor cricketers along the way. (laughs) Or they found a lot of good cricketers that they ruined trying to make into a great all-rounder the way that Ian Botham was. So I just find the whole thing is so fascinating. He's such a fascinating story. But thank you so much for coming on. And uh, it's probably the most you've ever talked about cricket, except for the time (laughs) I was on your podcast. But thanks for coming on and sharing the great all-round two-way baseball story. Oh, my pleasure. It's one of my favorite topics, and I'm uh, so thrilled that we have a player like Shohei Otani to talk about. So thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app.